0: Hello everyone, it's January 15th, 2019. This week there's trouble on Hubble. It's having some camera issues. I also have camera issues. Specifically, I just can't figure out how to take good pictures. Hubble never has that problem though, so it could be worse. Let's get to it and lift off. And the tower. Welcome to episode 193 of the Optimal Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. All right, what's some good banter we have? Anything going on in your lives?
1: I got a splinter in my finger this week.
0: Okay, well, that's great.
1: <laughs> bought some new uh, furniture.
0: Oh, you bought new furniture. Okay, these are all really random things.
1: Uh, I need to apologize if you guys end up hearing a dog in the background. We did a recording before this one, and in the interim, I went and got a little bit of summer sausage, because I bought a summer sausage, and... uh Reggie is very upset that I'm not giving him any. <laughs>
0: so. Aren't summer sausages the ones that are like the really hard ones that you buy, like those little Pepperidge Farm gift baskets? Isn't that what those are?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think Pepperidge okay. Farm does them. Yeah,
0: those are meant to be eaten with like crackers or something, right? Or yeah. can you just eat it by mm. itself?
1: You can do both. Um, so I bought it because um, I've been doing meal prep, and uh, last week I did corned beef and cheese and crackers as part of as part of the meal, lunch meal prep. <laughs> And so this week I was gonna do cold rotisserie chicken, but they were out of chicken when I got there. So I got a
0: summer sausage. Well, that was um, some cool non-sous vide food talk, but yeah, I guess we still had to do it, right? So
2: top of the hour food.
0: yeah, top. Yeah, top of the hour, and then of course next up uh, this week in spaceflight history, back to space. Uh, so I don't remember our clue from last week. Some, something about uh, just nine oh. hours. Yes. In fact, that was a clue that I came up with, so I don't know how I yeah, found that. Was that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, So just nine hours. Okay, cool. And it looks like we got some people who Yeah, won. we
1: got a decent number of winners. Uh, Kyle, Jason Friesen, Law Love, and Gabriel Norris, Kevin Miller, and Mike Harper. Congratulations. This week in Space Fight History is the 19th of January, 2006. It was the launch of New Horizons. This is very, very well-timed, I think. So I want to talk about n- New Horizons in a way that's not just like, hey, guess what? It just flew past a Kuiper. Belt object. The launch of New Horizons was kind of interesting because um, there were some, uh, there were a good handful of launch opportunities. Um, As far as I know, they came up with three uh, so one primary, two backup launch opportunities. So the primary. Um, was some uh, 23 days in January. And this was the primary because it allowed them to do a Jupiter flyby. If they missed the January launch opportunity, they would have to fall back to either the next month or if things got really bad to the next year, the, f- the following January. And both of those two follow up, like optional launch opportunities did not include a Jupiter flyby. This is really, really interesting because we all know that New Horizons was was very, very quick. It departed Earth very fast. But what I didn't realize was that it departed Earth fast enough that it didn't need to fly past Jupiter. Now, doing the Jupiter flyby knocked five or six years off of its uh, time to get to Pluto, but it could have done it. We basically just sent a vehicle flying out of the solar system with no gravity boosts. How cool is that? I love it. Um, so it was launched on an Atlas V in the 551 configuration. This was the first time uh, that a 551 had ever flown. So yeah, not, not only do we not see uh, five solid rockets very often on an Atlas V, this was the first time it had ever been done. Uh, they had never flown with five boosters. That was not the only first for this launch, but it was also the first time that an Atlas V had ever flown with a third stage in its fairing. The third stage was a Star 48B. The Star upper stage, or the PAM payload assist module, something like that. (laughs) I forget what PAM stands for, but like these solid rockets, uh, they're, they're made by uh, what used to be ATK and is now Northrop Grumman. And, you know, they're just super reliable, solid upper stages um, what I really like about these guys um, is that, you know, there, I think there are five vehicles that are headed out of the solar system. Well, there are also five upper stages. They're all star solid rockets. So, you know, ATK kind of put their stamp on the, on the uni- or not the universe, but the galaxy in, in that way. They, uh, the first, uh, rocket engines to leave, to leave the sun. And not only that, but, uh, New Horizons also had two yo-yo decelerators to, to slow the spin down because the Star 48B is a spin-stabilized upper stage. It, it kind of sits on a Lazy Susan that spins up before it decouples from uh, whatever stage is directly below it. Um, so then to slow down that spin, there are two masses on cables that are coiled up around the vehicle. So it lets those go, which slows the spin by spreading that angular momentum over a wider area, basically. Um, so those are also headed out of the solar system. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, dumb stages that, you know, we can't track, but are still headed out of the solar system, you got to mention those as well. Uh, also, this Atlas V um, was damaged during Hurricane Wilma. So this hurricane threw a door into one of the solid boosters on the Atlas <laughs> V. Uh, they ended up just swapping it out. So uh, yeah, now now we've got uh, New Horizons, you know, up out of the atmosphere and and flying away from the earth, it achieved an escape velocity of 16.26 kilometers per second. And Wikipedia, I went to look this up on Wikipedia, and they had three other uh, speed units of speed. So I'm going to read these as well just because I think it's fun. <laughs> so 16.26 kilometers per second, which is also 10.10 miles per second, 58,500 kilometers per hour, and 36,400 miles per hour. Um, The clue referred to the fact that it took nine hours for New Horizons to cross the Moon's orbit. Just a a breakneck speed. I mean, it's insane. So once it's past the Moon's orbit, there were three TCMs, three trajectory correction maneuvers planned. They only needed two because the the first one uh, was right on the money. Um, So between those two initial TCMs, they spent 19 or 20 meters per second of delta v, uh, so this launched on the nineteenth of January. By the seventh of April, it was already crossing Mars's orbit. Mm-hmm. By June thirteenth, they actually uh, did a flyby of one three two five five two four APL, very catchy name for an asteroid. So mm-hmm. they had thought about maybe trying to sling New Horizons past an asteroid, but in the end, it was just too important uh, to conserve delta v. Um, They weren't going to do any extra maneuvers to to get it past an asteroid. So once they launched it, literally it was after they launched it, they had, you know, at that point they know exactly where it's going to be going, what the trajectory is going to look like. And so at that point they go, okay, let's look at the asteroid catalog and see if we're going near anything. And indeed they went, Relatively near that really catchy name one three two five two four APL, so they didn't do anything to get closer to it. So just by random chance, they happen to fly within a hundred, uh, or just over a hundred thousand kilometers of this asteroid. And so in this instance, they got to test Ralph, which was uh, one of the uh, imaging sensors. What's the other one?
2: Oh, uh, Alice. Alice, thank you.
1: Uh, so they couldn't test Alice because uh, they were still too close to the sun.
2: And I'm seeing, uh, I mean, I've never heard of this asteroid before, but I'm guessing if they just discovered it, it's named after APL, the Applied Physics Laboratory. I'm assuming APL discovered it, yeah. But I mean, that, those are the people behind New Horizons. Right, but they, it, it was
1: discovered before New Horizons. Oh, okay. Yeah. So after uh, flying past this asteroid, they flew past Jupiter. And what's really cool is that they returned more data on Jupiter than they returned on Pluto. The only reason for that is because they could dump their data buffer multiple times while flying past Jupiter because they were closer to Earth. And so we were able to send more commands after we got the first data dump. And that's pretty cool. Not only that, but they were able to get some uh, images of Jupiter's moons. They weren't close to any of the moons just because of the orbital dynamics. But hey, guess what? New Horizons is built to look at very dim objects, so, you know, large... And distant is just as good as small and close up. So they were able to get um, some pretty good images of Jupiter's moons. So from Jupiter to Pluto, um, they did two additional TCMs, and they only spent uh, roughly five meters per second of delta V on those two TCMs. Um, I think it's so fascinating to understand how if you affect a system early, you get very dramatic outcomes, right? Yeah. It, this this mm-hmm. is part of uh, what's it called uh, chaotic uh, chaotic outcomes from limited starting conditions. I, f- I forget the just chaos. <laughs> as
2: far as I yeah, can tell. yeah, it's
1: part of chaos theory.
0: Yeah, but they're making that correction early on because they do know where it's going to be. It's not so much chaos, it's just that you're, you know... Right, but sensitive
2: to the initial conditions. There you go. What's chaotic about it. Yes, yeah, exactly. So
0: Sensitive to initial conditions, but I would say in this case with high predictability of outcome because they know where it's going to be and that is exactly why they made the correction. So
1: Well, high predictability of outcome, but still some chaos, right? Because they have to do additional TCMs as they get get closer.
0: Which uh, makes sense because if you're making like an adjustment of five meters per second delta V so early on i mean i think it's incredible that you can even do that you can make that kind of a calculation and say okay we need to change it by five meters i mean it's such a small amount you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and in the vastness Mm -hmm. of space just it's incredible like that's one of those things that really continually blows my mind and i guess i just have to know more about the math and you know the instrumentation to actually understand how it's even possible because it, it just doesn't seem possible to me but things can navigate the solar system so yeah
1: Uh, So really good info from the chat. Thanks to Sam in the chat. He points out that uh, APL, it was initially named 2002 JF-56, um, and it was discovered by Linear, uh, obviously, in, in 2002. And then it was named APL after the New Horizons flyby, which is pretty cool. So it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, like I said, totally random, but, you know, we happen to do it. So anyway, uh, once they do, you know, these uh, two TCMs, they've got a ways to go to get to Pluto. And so, you know, they put the spacecraft into hibernation and basically every year I would wake up for two months. They would do instrument calibrations and checkups and just make sure making sure the vehicle is running OK and then put it back to sleep for another year. You know, kind of kind of boring. But these cruise periods are obviously super important.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and, and even as is boring in the one sense, but I can imagine it being very, I would I would be stressed out and nervous every single time, you know, <laughs> like, please wake up. Yeah. Oh, good, it's back. Yeah. Uh, but that's a smart way to do it for sure.
0: All right, so that's this week in Space Flight History. All right, and what is our clue for next week then?
1: Next week in 1978, the clue is clean up on aisle 49.
0: Oh, man.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You get extra points if you can tell me why the aisle number is important.
0: Is there a launch pad with that number in there somewhere? Maybe. I don't know. Clearly, that's not a reference to an actual grocery store because that would be a big grocery store. I don't even think Sam's <laughs> big, Club's a big, big grocery right?
1: store. Or small aisles
0: or small mm. aisles, yeah, maybe aisle forty-nine. Clean up on aisle forty-nine next week in nineteen seventy-eight. All right. Well, if you think you know what that's about, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. <laughs> some further Hubble issues or as I think I wanted to call it uh, camera trouble on the Hubble because it rhymes. I guess that's been done (laughs) to death. Every time Hubble has an issue you have to rhyme trouble in Hubble. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the issue... Uh, That happened, I think, last or this, yeah, this most recent Tuesday was a camera, the Wide Field Camera 3, which actually is responsible for taking images in two different wavelengths of light. And one of those is not operating right now, like something happened to it. Right now, we don't know what that is, huh?
2: Yeah, no, it's it's basically they got a voltage, uh, an anomalous voltage reading. And so the ground operators realized there was something wrong there. So they kind of just shut it down until they can figure out what's going on. They're currently gathering telemetry and onboard memory information to try to figure out what happened because they do have redundant electronics, Mm -hmm. but they don't want to turn those on until they recognize exactly what caused the current problem. Now,
1: are they having any personnel issues due to the partial
2: government shutdown? Well, let's see. It's Space Telescope Science Institute.
0: I think at the moment they're not having too many issues, but it's probably going to become one because there are some people who they need to consult but they work for NASA I guess or some other government funded type of an organization and obviously you can't talk to them
2: I'm looking just yeah I'm looking at it and they they're operated for NASA by Aura where Aura is a university association of uh, different research institutions or universities so I'm not entirely sure if they're quite as I didn't notice anybody on Twitter unfortunately so I can't confirm whether or not the people that are like I can't answer emails or tweet about anything related to my science because of the current shutdown I don't I didn't notice whether or not there were any of uh, any space telescope people that were tweeting that. Well what what I did see though was that you know you know the basically there are people that are working on it now. And so even if there are some I don't know if the shutdown's affecting it it's not it hasn't brought Things to a screeching halt, I guess is what we we can at least surmise from some of what's been written about this problem right now. Is that there are, you know, people actively investigating the cause.
0: It looks like it's uh, the Hubble Space Telescope Mission Office, which is in Baltimore and... I don't think that they are affected by the government shutdown. So, you know, I think that that's who is responsible for like the day-to-day operations, um, at least as I understand it. But there are other people who they cannot consult right now. So just getting back to the camera for a second. So this camera, it has, I guess, two channels, I think is the term used. And so one can actually make observations in uh, the ultraviolet and the visible spectrum. And then there's another one that just does infrared. And the problem that they're having is the one That's the ultraviolet and the visible light part of the spectrum. So it can't make observations there. But uh, the infrared side of the camera, or I don't know if it's the side, but whatever, is that still in operation or has that been shut down too because it's integrated?
2: I'm not sure. Well, yeah, so I mean, it's it's a matter of, yeah, they they basically, when it has these two kinds of modes, that's unfortunate if, if it's the UV optical side that is the one that's down right now because the infrared part, overlaps with the other main camera on Hubble, the ACS, Advanced Camera for Surveys. And so even though they have different features and they're usually used together, uh, people will try to get time on both of them, or orbits, we call it. And so there's some redundancy there. And so that's not, you know, the end of the world. And even more so, there's actually an entire other instrument called NICMOS, which is a near-infrared camera and multi-object spectrometer that they turned off in 2009 because Whitefield Camera 3 is just better than it and can do the same thing only better. And so if Whitefield Camera 3 turned out to be totally inoperable, they could just bring Nick Moss back online and then yeah, it's not going to be as good, the resolution won't be as good, uh but you'll still be able to do very high resolution near infrared imaging and take spectra with Nick Moss. And like I mentioned before, so the instrument itself has redundancies. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I had written here that I'm not ready to panic just yet because... I think once they figure out what went wrong, then they can just kind of switch over to these redundant modes and get it to operate.
0: This instrument was installed back in 2009, and that was during a servicing mission. It had replaced the Wfpc2, so that's the Wide Field Something Camera two.
2: Planetary Camera with Pick two, and and I liked it more with that name because you could just say with Pick two, and I don't know, I don't think with three, nobody really says that. <laughs> they say Wide Field <laughs> Camera three. <laughs> And so, yeah, I mean, th- this, this is, and I think I, I feel like every time Hubble's brought up, I always just, I'm going to just reemphasize this again. It really is that big a deal in astronomy. It is when you want UV, optical, infrared imaging, it is, you know. The best, essentially. Just being above the atmosphere and just having, having such good uh, instrumentation on there since, you know, we had all these servicing missions. And so it's... Uh, whitefield Camera 3 in particular, I like that it's taken some of the most iconic images that you've ever seen with HST. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when you think of, like, you know, the Pillars of Creation, for example, which is part of the... I believe it's the Eagle Nebula. I think it's kind of like mm-hmm. the Talons of the Eagle Nebula. That one was taken by... Yeah, wi Camera 3 specifically. Because it has basically as good an angular resolution as you can get. It's a 20th of an arc second per pixel, which at least invisible wow. in, in, in infrared, that's as good as you can get. With radio, you can go ridiculously better. But
0: <laughs> so did you want to talk about future servicing missions or anything cuz I don't know if I don't know how that's possible.
2: So at least in some of the reporting I had seen quotes talking about future servicing missions had been proposed and discussed but nothing is set in stone. And so after a little bit of digging on that evidently a year or so ago um, the Trump administration talked about the idea of what's that? The Dream Chaser mm-hmm. potentially being outfitted and basically used as uh, used for future servicing missions to hubble because uh there might be you know the gap if hubble went down between that and james wst which ironically enough this article was back when jwst still had the 2018 uh, launch date it hadn't gotten pushed back at the time that that reporting was done and so uh i i mean ben and i talked a little bit before the show and we're both skeptical that mm-hmm. anything would ever you know materialize as far as servicing missions.
0: Yeah, it it doesn't seem to me that the Dream Chaser is capable of that, right? I mean, it just isn't it's a very small vehicle and I guess you could put some astronauts on board. So
1: here here's my here's my beef. There's no arm, so you can't grapple Hubble. So you can't stay near Hubble. Like you can't do crew operations near Hubble. If you can't grapple it you just can't you would spend so much fuel and just contaminate the entire area with fuel if you tried you know station keeping next to it and you know you're still going to have people tethered to your space it's just it's ridiculous Mm -hmm. Um, and
2: and i'm thinking as far as timelines like if for some bizarre reason there was all of this momentum behind let's go and actually put an arm on dream chaser if you could and do all this that and the other thing to get it to actually be feasible that's going to take longer than 2021 which fingers crossed hopefully will be when james webb does get up there the timing doesn't seem to work for me at least it's a good point yeah so uh it's uh unfortunate and i think it's just going to really screw over the people that got time to use well, i feel mm-hmm. camera three but i don't think this is anything to panic about, unless you're those people. Maybe your thesis, <laughs> will, take, maybe your thesis yeah. will take another two years, you know, mm-hmm. to finally get out the door, which kind of sucks, but I'm sorry.
0: Let's do some short and sweet. We got four of them, two of them, SpaceX's. And uh, what is our first one?
2: So, Hayabusa 2 releases date for first sample collection. Hayabusa 2 team members announced via Twitter the date for its first sample collection from the asteroid Ryugu. On February 18th, the spacecraft will perform its first of three sampling attempts, excavating material using a kinetic impactor and collecting the uplifted debris. Meanwhile, the solar-paneled hopping rovers deployed by Hayabusa 2 last September are still exploring the surface, which has recently received nicknames for geologic features with the theme of names that appear in stories for children.
0: Next up, a uh, strata-launch taxi test reaches 136 miles per hour almost takeoff speed the world's largest airplane strata launch performed its latest taxi test at california's mojave air and spaceport on january 9th reaching 110 knots or 136 miles per hour this is about as fast as a plane can be tested while staying on the ground one picture released on the same day showed the plane's nose gear rising from the runway. With these tests accomplished, the airplane's maiden flight is scheduled to occur just days later.
1: Uh, Thirdly, uh, SpaceX's thirdfully. DM-1 mission has been delayed. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, yeah, you can say it I love sure. it. <laughs> uh, next up, SpaceX's DM-1 mission has been delayed. At least in part due to the government shutdown limiting availability of range personnel, the first launch of Crew Dragon has been delayed. NASA says that it's targeting no early than February instead of the 17th of January as previously planned. Starliner isn't planned to fly until
0: March. Fourthly, um, another SpaceX one, uh, SpaceX to cut roughly 10% of its workforce. In an effort to focus more financial resources on its next generation launch system and broadband satellite constellation, SpaceX is laying off around 600 people, stating that in order to achieve its goals, it must become a leaner company. According to a source at SpaceX, this reduction in employees is perhaps also necessary due to its rapid growth over the past. Last decade.
1: Okay, stand by it. We're looking at
0: it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. We have um, call for we help. we were contacted. Yeah, we were contacted via our subreddit. No,
1: no, actually, actually, no. It was it was in the spaceflight subreddit. Oh, okay. Oh, well, that's cool. So what happened was I I posted last week's data relay to the spaceflight subreddit. And somebody asked if we had transcripts, and unfortunately I had to say no. Well, transcripts have been something that I've been thinking about for a while, and we have at least one person who would like to consume the data that we're putting out there, but can't because they are hearing impaired. And, of course, transcripts are also great for pretty much every other segment of the population, not just uh, hard of hearing or uh, uh, hearing impaired people. So um, I've been talking to our community manager, Richard Durden, um, about how we're going to approach this, we have sort of a game plan in mind. But he and I both agree it would be a better idea to reach out to all of you. If there's anybody who is interested in helping, you know, we're going to need volunteers to do this. But if anybody has experience with this and can help direct us in the in the right direction, um, we would love to discuss our game plan with you. If you have time, we'd love to maybe bring you on board and put you in charge of of doing transcripts. Although we can certainly handle it for at least for the game plan that we have we can we can manage it ourselves. We're just gonna need volunteers to help us. Um so if, if any of this sounds like something you're interested in or something you have experience in, please get in touch. And uh, let me know, because I would love to talk to you.
2: Thanks
0: in advance. All right, moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. Just one launch, really, and possibly another one within the next week. But uh, we got one coming up on January 17th.
2: So we do know that, if everything works out well, that on January 17th, uh, Epsilon will be launching the RAPIS-1 satellite, along with some other technologies. Into space. Um, it's a rideshare mission. Uh, these are experimental microsats and cubesats, in addition to RAPIS one. And like I said, this will be January seventeenth at zero zero fifty twenty UTC, with a launch window from. 0050-20 UTC to 0059-37 UTC, uh, flying out of the Moose Center at Uchinoura Space Center in Japan.
1: So one of the other payloads potentially on the Rapus one flight is ALE-1. The infamous ALE-1. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, Astro Live Experiences. They're the people who are going to do uh, potentially uh, orbital fireworks, which I think is pretty cool just to talk about ourselves even more uh we mentioned them on episode 59 in fact we had a an entire episode named after them uh the episode was fastest fireworks back when alliteration <laughs> was super important in our names and not just whatever ben can come up with
0: uh-huh. so this is you said it's infamous is that because it's going to create problems for astronomers
2: no well, i mean i don't know i like i've, I've just heard people with we, we talked at the top of the show about there being haters I've, I've heard some haters about this sort of thing. And I, I mean, it's not really going to be an issue for, uh, astronomers when we're taking our, you know, not any worse than an airplane flying overhead or, you know, a shooting star or, you know, anything like that. And so, I don't know. I just think when it it's more of the people that are not quite so commercial friendly about things, they think it's, uh, extravagant and kind of just a waste of resources and money and things like that. Yeah,
0: but I mean as long as it doesn't cause any pollution because that's like the big thing for me is I don't want there to be pollution in low earth orbit but as long as it doesn't do Mm. that, well then you can do whatever you want.
2: Yeah, I I think it'll be fine.
0: Like that's an interesting argument. It's like you might say it's a waste of money but it's money that's being paid to people so (laughs) you're still creating jobs I guess. I don't know.
1: Personally, I know nobody's asking me but I think it's pretty Mm. cool.
0: Yeah, it would be an awesome show to see. It's so rare that I get to see a good meteor shower, mostly because I'm not looking up at the right time, obviously. But Mm -hmm. so if they can just create one and say it'll be here at this time, that's a cool idea.
1: Well, I've always wanted to go to Japan. So, I mean, maybe I can go to the 2020 Olympics and not attend the Olympics, just eat a bunch of food and watch space (laughs) (laughs) fireworks. You'd have a wonderful time.
0: Yeah. That is the correct way to do Japan, I think. Food and fireworks. <laughs> so, in addition to that launch, there might also be the launch of a Delta IV Heavy at some point, maybe in the next week. We don't know. Um, there is a TBD. Uh, this is actually an Enroll mission. It is launching Enroll 71. And so, that's a classified payload, and that is launching from Vandenberg. And apparently, it was supposed to lift off, I think, well, I don't remember when, but it's been uh, delayed due to a hydrogen leak, according to Tori Bruno. But maybe they've narrowed that down at this point. So it looks like it may might actually lift off in the next couple of days, depending on how quickly they can fix that leak.
1: Well, in any event, those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: And in that event, we will close out the show. So we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
2: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 enough Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
1: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitomechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
2: You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're orbital podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: So that's it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See ya.